0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Today's conversation includes content that may be upsetting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs help, Lifeline is always there for you on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Frank Palmos grew up in a small country town in Victoria. Even as a kid, Frank wanted to go out and see the world as a foreign correspondent. And this was in the post-war years, when the Australian media focused largely on events in Washington or London, but Frank landed somewhere closer to home. He came to Indonesia in the early 1960s, a place that was very underreported at the time. Frank learnt the language, and he quickly became Indonesia's most well-connected and influential correspondent. Frank knew the doomed President Sukarno, and he saw so much of that country, a country that was about to enter a great and terrifying ordeal, and he witnessed Indonesia's slide into civil war. Frank also did time in Vietnam as a war correspondent, and he came home as the sole survivor of an ambush that killed his best friend. It was an ordeal that stayed with Frank for many years until he returned to Vietnam in the 90s, to find the man responsible for that ambush. Hello, Frank. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you, Richard. As I said, you grew up in this tiny timber town in Victoria. How did a kid in a country town get the idea that you could go out into the world and be a foreign correspondent and go to these fascinating places, and that the job might be a rich and fascinating one?
0: Well, the town was New G, population about 320, and in the primary school, there was a library which had about 24 books in it. And one of the books was an American book with a woodcut showing the image of a reporter meeting Dr. Livingston. And underneath it was the famous phrase, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume. (laughs) So... I thought, well, that's what I want to be. I want to be a foreign correspondent.
1: A two-shelf library with 24 books on it. My, my word. So at the same time, were you getting newspapers and were you reading those really closely? Yes, well, we got the Melbourne Argus, which was the
0: newspaper, and Dr Peter Russo, Australia's leading Asian expert, and in fact wrote his PhD in Japanese. And so he ended up on the Melbourne Argus delivering two long editorials a week, called Behind the News and my mother would read his contributions to me no matter that I was only 8 and 9 years of age I got to dream about being a foreign correspondent like Dr Peter Russo so once you got older how did you find your way into journalism well my cousin who was a news reader for the Macquarie News Network took me along to the Melbourne Argus and suggested that I start as a messenger boy and I was lucky enough to get the mezzanine floor to deliver materials to Dr. Peter Russo. So did you tell him you wanted to be a foreign correspondent in Asia? Well, he worked it out for himself because he had a big, big map of Asia and he started to teach me where the main ports were all the way around. He said that I would have to learn a language and it would take too long to learn kanji. You can do Hindu or Urdu for India or Malay for Malaysia and, or Malaya and Indonesia. And of those, I chose Indonesia because his wife was listening to this conversation. She said, you should learn Indonesia. The Indonesians are really happy people.
1: And that was it. So that was Indonesia. (laughs) So how were you going to get to Indonesia as a young aspiring journalist, Frank? Well, that was the big puzzle, wasn't it? My wages were um, always uh,
0: very low, but in 1957... The Argus was taken over by the Herald and Weekly Times and I decided because I'd been working so frequently with the Argus's racing staff as a messenger boy, I approached them and they paid me 10 shillings a week to go to the Caulfield race course every Thursday morning and do track gallops. So I accepted that. I decided I would become a professional punter. So I used all of the knowledge I got from morning gallops, and I began punting, and I succeeded. How much money were you winning in those days, Frank? Well, there were two big wins. The first win was about 70 or 80 pounds, and as the money was being put into my hand, my very young hand, uh, I heard this voice behind me say, young Frankie, you keep going like this and you'll end up with the ass out of your pants. <laughs> I turned around, and it was Mr Ron Taylor, assistant editor of the Argus for whom I'd done a lot of work, and I loved him. And Ron said, what are you doing with all this? And I said, I'm sorry, Mr Taylor, I had to become a punter because I didn't have a job. And uh, he just cut me off and he said, nine o'clock, on the doorstep, my office, Monday morning, don't be late. And I had a job.
1: So you finally got a proper journalism job then with that. How did you get yourself to Indonesia? I very
0: quickly went through the ranks in journalism until I was about a B grade. I still had not anywhere near enough money and concentrated on winning enough money to take me to Indonesia for two years. And after a 10-week dry period, I found the horse that I wanted to back and won 46 (laughs) weeks' salary. Wow. And the moment I got back, I walked across the road Qantas and I booked a return ticket, which was fabulously expensive. And I ended up taking a three and a half day trip overnight Sydney, overnight Brisbane, almost overnight in Darwin, and almost overnight in Bali, and then into Jakarta three and a half days. It was nineteen sixty one and I was twenty one. I got off the plane, went straight to the Bank Nagara, which is the small state bank, and uh, there was a young man about my own age, named Nurawenda. And he said, how are you getting to your hotel? I said, I have no hotel. He said, you'll come with me. We got in a butcher. It was pouring rain and we had a little plastic sheet above us. I looked up and there was a man about my father's own age, you know, about 55 or whatever. And he was peddling away, pushing two healthy boys and a big suitcase for about five miles. And I uh, almost burst into tears. They took me in, they gave me a spare bed they had there and given an opportunity also straight away of going to the foreign office and sitting for an examination to test one's Indonesian application and they handed me to a tutor whose name was Alex Alitas. This was Ali Alatas. This is Ali Alitas, yes, who of course became
1: Indonesia's most famous perhaps foreign minister uh, a few years later. So you were pretty quickly embedded with the local people there. How was it you got to meet President Sukarno?
0: Oh, within the first few days, I was asked to take some translation from the Foreign Office of one of Sukarno's speeches to Merdeka Freedom Palace, which is in the heart of Jakarta. And upon arriving, I was hailed by one of his ministers. He asked me, are you the journalist from Australia? And I said, yes, I am. He said, oh, the president will be happy to see you because you have the speech translated in your hand. He dismissed me after, you know, about a a very polite minute or so, but uh, he never forgot who I was. And uh, over the next years, I became an honorary interpreter to the press and to the foreign diplomats.
1: He was the powerful leader that emerged after independence in Indonesia. And they say there's two kinds of revolutionary personalities. There's the ice-cold figures like Lenin and Stalin, and there's also the romantic, passionate types like Mao Zedong and Leon Trotsky. Where would you put someone like Sukarno on that matrix, do you reckon? Sukarno had a
0: huge, huge following in millions whenever he spoke, but it was very romantic stuff, and he would wander off, (laughs) off the central theme. But he was very funny, really, really funny. And he had an amazing, an amazing memory. I was in Jogjakarta once when he stopped a jeep and he jumped out and he walked about 25 metres to an old lady who was sitting under a little shop area. And he asked, how's your mother? How's your mother now? Is she well now? And this woman just burst into tears and he got back in and I found out that he had been asking me obviously, about that woman's mother. And he'd known them, uh, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was. And the, this astonished all, the crowd, of course. But he, was, he did a lot of things like that. How compelling was he as an orator? Oh, mesmerising. I eventually graduated to being translator of his Independence Day speeches. And after the second one, I was dizzy and I had to sit for several minutes to absorb what I'd heard and stop the bells ringing in my ears. And I could see the 100,000 people listening to him um, were equally dazed.
1: At the time, Sukarno was trying to balance the most powerful forces in Indonesia at the time, which was the military, uh, Islamic clerics... And the Communist Party, which was, I was astonished to read, the largest Communist Party in the world outside of Beijing and Moscow in those yes, days. Was. How good was he at balancing those, those forces? And could anyone have really ever done that for very long? He never did. He never
0: really put them all together. What he wanted to do personally was to be remembered as an international political theorist on par with Marx and Stalin. So he pushed forward... His own theory, NASACOM, NASF for nationalism, A for agama, religion, and COM for communism, could all be merged into one. But he virtually died with no progress on that matter because it was the army that refused to
1: accept communism. The only way he ever would have got Indonesia to accept that kind of hybrid theory is by coercion, wasn't, wouldn't it? I mean, he could only have ever done that with the army 100% behind him. Yes, that's true. The only power 100% behind him, foreign
0: power, were the Chinese, who of course had tremendous influence over the PKI, which is the Indonesian
1: Communist Party. You said that when you first arrived in Indonesia in 61, you felt very comfortable and very welcomed, and you received all this incredible hospitality and kindness. When did that feeling start to change, and, and what did you notice of the changing, and changing environment and temperature and, and feeling in Indonesia at the time?
0: I noticed it when I took up uh, serious professional reporting. I had to visit and report on all of the political parties in Indonesia. And uh, one of them, of course, was the PKI. The Communist Party. The Communist Party. And I got on very, very well with the leader, whose name was Adit. He would deliver his speeches, which always said that communism was the way for Indonesia to go. And he had fairly large audiences. And I would stand behind Aided and his speech stopped. And these ruffians behind him used to give me the cutthroat symbol of what would happen to me after the Communist Party took over. And for two years, which basically was the year of living dangerously, for about two years, on Java especially, the young members of the Communist Party ran wild. They would smash up anything Western. The Beatles were banned, records were destroyed, and on one burning, the USIS library was ransacked and 22,000 books were burned in Jakarta by the communists. And so the communists split Indonesia into two, really. The one peaceful side was mostly the Muslims and anybody who was interested in following a Western-style development. And on the other side, the Chinese had stepped in with their very brutal propaganda, and so it became... Very difficult for me and other people who were clearly
1: Westerners to walk the streets. You were living in the Hotel Indonesia at the time. I was. Tell me about your hotel room and what provisions you had to get out. Well, the moment
0: the PKI started to show its real colours, it meant that I was going to have some troubles because I was the only correspondent who could speak, read and write Indonesian. And the other correspondents... Usually had Indonesian assistants who would come in in the morning and do translations and so on. Well, they started to get questioned by these young men. You know, what are you doing working for foreigners? This sort of thing. And then they'd mention that we know where you live and we know you've got children and all that sort of stuff. And it scared the hell out of them. The journalists themselves didn't want to go out early in the daylight. If they lifted the camera, they risked, the camera being confiscated, and at least the film would be taken from them. What I did was I chose the Hotel Indonesia, room 201, and it had a window leading to the top of the garage, and I was able to effectively use that as an escape hatch if the communists had succeeded in a coup, for example.
1: So then on the 30th of September 1965... Six senior generals within the Indonesian military were assassinated in an attempted coup. How did you become aware something was up? I got a call in my room from a
0: Western educated lawyer named Nasutian, oddly enough. He had come all the way to the hotel and used the internal phone and to tell me that the external wires were all down and he said the shooting started, it's all started, and then he hung up. So I jumped out the window and I entered my car and drove straight to Tuka Umar, which was the street where General Nasutian, nominal head of the army, lived, went up to Nasutian's place and found a group of four or five well armed soldiers wearing colourful scarves. When they saw that I'd come very close to them, they held me and said, stop. And uh, one of them just said, oh, aja just kill him, because obviously I'd walked into something that, something very, very serious had gone on. And I noticed then that Nasudian's guard post was empty and the door slung open. So being Sukarno's interpreter, and I knew all of Sukarno's left-wing speeches, I began rather nervously giving parts of the speeches to say,
1: the time has arrived, the sun will rise in the east. So you were trying to give them the impression you were on side with these phrases so that they would see you as an ally? Not quite on side, but to see that I would be a good messenger for
0: their cause, yes. Now, I was very, very nervous throughout the whole this, but I remember the imitation was perfect. And this set them back a little bit. And they then turned me around and one of them kicked my backside and sent me on my way. And that was the first time that ever happened to me in Indonesia, let me tell you. And did you get the hell out of there? I did. I took the car and went straight then to General Yani's house. General Yani had written his own death warrant by refusing a certain Sukarno order about two weeks earlier. I found his big steel gate wide open. I fairly foolishly drove halfway in and then thought, well, how am I I going to get out if I have to? I didn't. I got out of the car and went straight to the house and I found blood all the way down a staircase and the wall of the staircase. The place was apparently empty of people in including family, and I had... Deep fear for my own safety at the time, then, because obviously the killers here couldn't be very far away. So I turned around and drove over to the Hotel Indonesia, where I went to the coffee shop and had a coffee and took a long rest of about, I don't know, half an hour or so just to get over the experience. And during that morning, Colonel Untung got on the radio and claimed a victory said that he was taking over the military forces. I was totally exhausted by that time, Uh, so I fell asleep for an hour or so. And when I woke up, Phil Kosh, a colleague from the ABC, had come to the Hotel too. and this hotel was used more or less as a listening post from then on, and there were about five or six foreign correspondents altogether. And luckily, the ABC, for the first time, sent someone in who could translate Indonesian. His name was Morris and he translated uh, Untung's short speeches, which absolutely positively
1: uh, identified this as a, as a coup. The coup didn't last long. It lasted like the better part of a day, didn't it? The, the generals had been assassinated by this group of, this shadowy group of soldiers, and they were calling themselves the 30th of September movement. And they were later accused as being a front for the Communist Party of Indonesia. Do we know that? Was that true? Um,
0: they were later accused of being a front for the Communist Party because almost certainly they were uh, communists in the sense that they'd been turned during their army training. We were all in no doubt that Untung was following the communist line. And a few months later, when investigations uh, took a legal turn, we found that most of the the killing squad anyway had been
1: seriously indoctrinated by the PKI. So the coup was broken, and it was broken by army forces led by General Sahato, who went on, of course, to become that long-serving president of Indonesia, What did you see unfold in Indonesia in the days and weeks that followed the failed coup? It was an eerie time because uh, Suharto didn't wish to claim
0: leadership too quickly. He was a bit worried that Sukarno's popularity among the general population uh, would probably be a handbrake for him. So he made sure that Sukarno was not killed and was kept alive at the Harlem uh, Air Base. He turned Sukarno into a kind of a hostage, really, didn't he? Yes, he did. He was a very, very effective general, let me tell you that. He sent out armoured cars and tanks, but a lot of foot soldiers too, and he sent them to crossroads where he would stop all major traffic, which had always, by that time, had slowed down to virtually nothing. And he started rounding up the people that he thought were going to emerge and identify themselves as PKI supporters. And so he did that within military ranks first and then within civilian ranks after that.
1: So there was a mass purge underway, a mass purge which led to this tsunami of violence in Indonesia. Yes, it did. Did you witness that? Or were you able to get out of the country before that started, Frank?
0: I did get out of the country on an unusual assignment, and that was to cover the Philippine elections. But by the time I got back, that upsurge in violence was just beginning. I had, uh, during the previous year, been the co-founder of the Jakarta Foreign Correspondence Club. So I called the meeting and asked who wanted to come down to central Java with me, which was reported to be the hotbed of killing And the only person who volunteered was a Canadian radio journalist. We went into central Java. We did have these very strong reports of mass killings. So I went down into Java and on the way we saw empty rice fields where usually there'd be 20, 30, 40 people working. We went into towns that were almost empty except for strange, quickly written welcomes Suharto and welcome the new powers. And when we got right down to Jakarta, I asked the photographer to take a photograph of some army trucks that were coming by with very high sides. And in those trucks, like tumbrils, were about 15 to 20 at a time communists. And they were bound and there was no doubt that they would be shot or killed.
1: That was too, too close for us. A very scary time. You wrote a report after the killings and you tried to put a number on the people killed. What number did you arrive at, Frank?
0: One million. Now that was an ugly number, but I spent a lot of time doing that. And uh, I got up to about 825,000. Then I came to Bali. And after Bali, I was then in no doubt that it would get to be about a million. That was published in
1: The uh, Economist in London. That was my assignment. Was there always going to be this kind of mass slaughter, one way or another, in Indonesia at the time? Was there something, something hellishly inevitable about this or not?
0: Yes, because the division between the Russian Communist Party and their policies of reaching complete power and the Chinese, in other words, completing the revolution they Would call it. And if you complete the revolution in China, you know, everybody would be a perfect communist. Well, during that period, you had Pol Pot, directed by Mao Zedong, and he adopted the same policies. And it was called eliminating contra revolutionaries. Anybody who disagreed with you would be killed, would be removed. Pol Pot removed about two million. From uh, what, a 7 million population?
1: Many millions of people were killed in the Great Leap Forward and then the subsequent Cultural Revolution. Exactly. There were millions of people killed in Stalin's purges in the 1930s. It seems like a disease of the age, doesn't it? Yes. Uh,
0: Yes, it was. The numbers were so huge. And then right on my own doorstep, we then see week after week after week of disappearances, and especially in Java, Bali
1: and Northern Sumatra. The foreign policy establishment in Australia, on both sides of politics, took a kind of cold-eyed view of all of this. They concluded that in the end, yes, the violence was terrible, but Suharto succeeded in stabilising the country, which was good for Australia, good for the region, kept Indonesia on the western side of the Cold War. What do you think of all of that, Frank? Mm. It's strongly
0: 50% true. And the reason I say strongly 50% true is that no matter how worried I was and how in fear I was during all this period, I was so pleased when Suharto's people finally established peace and orderliness in Jakarta. It was a very selfish thing for me because we could then travel um, unmolested.
1: It's the, it's the peace of the grave, wasn't it? Y- yes, Yes, it seemed to be.
0: Podcast Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: So you went to Vietnam, Frank. You went there again and again and again. You were there in 1964 on your first visit, and this was after the Gulf of Tonkin incident when President Lyndon Johnson decided to put boots on the ground, American troops in Vietnam, beyond the advisers. What did you think of America's chances in that war, in those early days, Frank? Along with a colleague uh,
0: named Hugh Lunn, uh, we, both, um, we both answered that question by saying, oh, look, America's got all the power. This is not going to take long. <laughs> uh, how wrong we were. So I flew into, into Saigon for the first time. Just on landing, I knew that it would be a, a big and long war because on landing, the, the Americans had not yet moved a lot of their fighters and bombers from the main Tonsunut airport. And I suppose there would have been 200 planes of various sorts, and you wouldn't have had that number unless it was going to be very, very big.
1: I think it was General Douglas MacArthur said that anyone trying to start a land war in Asia needs to get their head red. Do you think he was right? Very right, and most of the journalists thought the same way. Were you able to see some of the fighting that was going on between the U.S. forces and the Republic of South Vietnam forces versus what, what was the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese mm. army? Were you able to see uh, some of the frontline fighting while you were there, Frank? Yes, I did. I went to the front mostly
0: to see the action in the middle of Vietnam. Uh, so I based out of uh, Da Nang. And from Da Nang, I took rides, if you can excuse that expression, on bombers phantom bombers uh, over North Vietnam, and that gave me the first look at the country, um, which didn't look too different from the South, but of course it was pretty dangerous. Um, I was also tested uh, as a navigator and uh, given a gun, uh, given a gun to take care of myself, shoot myself, if I'd been um, forced to eject and be captured on the, on the ground because um, those who did land, uh, very few of them ended up in jail. Most of them were very severely um, beaten and
1: killed, of course. This is this is going a bit sideways here, Frank, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of that HBO series, Rome, that's centred around the time of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and, and yes. Augustus and all that. And there's a, a brilliant scene in that where the legions are fighting each other and you can see Mark Antony on a horse sitting next to the young Augustus octavian as he is there and octavian's got no battle experience and mark anthony has so much of it and he looks mark anthony looks kind of bored and octavian's very head up and he says what's going on what's going on who's winning who's winning and mark anthony says very with idris draws and he says i have no idea and i I think that's kind of a powerful statement about how difficult it is to see what's really going on when you're witnessing a battle did you experience that that kind of confusion with the fog of war Yes, I did. Not
0: long afterwards, in the same year, uh, I was in Contoum on uh, a mission uh, with a young American platoon whose uh, leader was talking all the time about uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, which, of course, made almost no sense to me. (laughs) But in any case, uh, about 15 to 20 of us uh, bedded down, and after about three to four hours, this is in the deep jungle of Contoum, right, Uh, We were uh, allegedly waiting for North Vietnamese to come past on Asian elephants, smaller elephants. However, he ordered us to bed down and everyone else got our shovels. But I didn't have a shovel, of course. So I had to uh, sort of hand dig a, a place for myself and I didn't quite get to sleep. But around about midnight, I had to creep around and pinch the noses of four or five of these uh, Americans who were snoring very loudly, so loudly... Oh, my God. Yep, that we'd be discovered, oh. you see. And in the morning, uh, I see a big uh, American walking through this little creek and he said, yep, yep, they went through there and I'd, I'd heard this chip-chip-chipping at, um, at the bamboo and I knew that the north were going through and I didn't dare call anybody... To attention to that because we would have all been annihilated then. Anyway, we, we went over there and sure enough, the North Vietnamese had, had to cut, um, I don't know, a dozen bamboos to get elephants or whatever through. And when we all inspected that, two to three of these ungainly men walked into the little creek and set off uh, mines. The noise went up and down the valley echoing and it was a dead giveaway, just just terrible. And I thought, well, I don't want to come out with this lot again.
1: You went back in the late 60s, and there was that day in May the 5th, 1968. This is during the second phase of the Tet Offensive, yes. when the communist forces were able to re-enter Saigon, which stunned the Americans and pretty much convinced the administration at the time that the war was lost. On this day in particular, the 5th of May, can you tell me what happened on that day with you there? That summary was pretty accurate, by the way. Uh,
0: It was a huge shock, especially to the Saigon people, who had been lulled into a a, a false sense of security. Nothing like that had happened so sharply and so quickly. Um, I awakened uh, on that Sunday morning in the... Saigon apartment of Bruce Piggott, my closest friend from Melbourne. And Bruce said, why don't you come with me? We're going to go down to Cholon.
1: This is the the Chinese suburb of Saigon? It is the
0: Chinese suburb. And so I went downstairs and John Cantwell, uh, I think was based out of Sydney, and he uh, worked for Time Magazine. And Time Magazine had a mini moak, which fitted four well-seated and I was the fifth to take a ride uh, down to the front line, so to speak. Um, Ron Laramie had only arrived the day before. He took one. He took one of the back seats. Uh, Bruce Piggott took a second back seat, and John John did the driving. Michael Birch was on the right hand side of the front seat, and he had quite a bit of local Vietnamese, and he was able to call out as he went through. Bao chi, bao chi, bao chi, which is press, press, press. And there was a big press in English on the windscreen anyway. And we followed a narrow lane. It was wet and a bit muddy, which we noticed was filling up very quickly with local inhabitants coming towards us, not running. They were coming towards us and in bigger and bigger numbers. We continued on to see if we could get to the front. They were obviously running from uh, action, firing and bombing and things like that. And we got to the deep heart of Cholon. So this is a lot uh, of street fighting you're saying then? Street fighting, which we didn't see until we turned a corner right in the, in the heart of Cholon. And the moment we turned the corner, John saw a squad of Viet, Viet Cong. One had a, a burp gun. And the other one had an AK-47 and there were two or three behind him. And what John did was to try stopping and starting to put it in gear to turn around and get out of the place. But then the squad opened fire and it was a very professional job. They fired straight into the radiator and then they put bullets into John and Michael Birch in the front and then just kept firing until they emptied their, their autos. I had, in the meantime, been a lot more worried because these people were running away from something very dangerous. I, I didn't wish to go any further, so halfway along, I moved uh, out of the left back seat and onto the mudguard of the back of the mini muck. When the firing started, this allowed me to slide off to the left and do um, a very phony job of uh, pretending uh, i have been shot, falling to the ground, but I fell to the ground so that I could still see what was going on up ahead, about four metres ahead of me. And uh, so this firing stopped after a little while. There was a bit of um, reloading. And one VC came forward, I remembered seeing his boots first of all, clearly my faces. Flat to the ground, and I could hear, I could hear too, of the journalists pleading, because they'd obviously been seriously wounded, and this man then delivered the coup de grace on them, and um, he must have been out of, or near enough out of ammunition, so I waited until he made the change, lifted a new ammunition slide into his 45, it was a big Russian 45, and when he was doing that, that, at the point of no return, I jumped up and sprinted away. I didn't know how long I'd be followed, Um, and so I ripped my shirt off and covered top half of my, you know, covered my chest and arms and so on like that with mud, an amateurish way of camouflaging myself until I got to the end of that particular narrow... Uh, road, and uh, some New Zealand troops stopped me and took me aside. They then, using secure vehicles, took me to the to the American headquarters and to and to yeah, safety, so to speak.
1: Were things the same for you after that? as a journalist? no,
0: I oh, know, no. no. No, uh, immediately uh, I was just a journalist uh, that uh, had survived and was feeling very, very lucky and very disappointed. First of all, um, I was a bit haywire because uh, I lost Bruce and he was my closest friend. Uh, and yet uh, Ron Laramie deserved uh, as much sympathy, but I hardly, I hardly remembered what he looked like. Um, that was the first thing. Then secondly, uh, I was looked after uh, by senior journalists uh, I was uh, what twenty eight at the time. Uh, the ones that I ended up working with w- were people who'd been in there a long, or been around Asia a long time, and they'd be you know seventy, sixty to seventy years of age. And that they uh, took me into their offices and sat me down, and uh, the AP man sat alongside me, and we he said, "Now just talk about what happened. Just talk," and and so I did. And he typed it all out and uh, that, hit the, that hit the international wire um, right at that time. I then fell asleep. Uh, I was so exhausted. I fell asleep for about an hour, an hour and a half. I was awakened um, gently by the same senior journalists and asked to come to the Follies. The Follies was the uh, American Forces Public Relations afternoon Sessions in which they would deliver any news that day. Uh, these senior journalists helped me to get up to the, um, uh, to the platform and to the microphone. Well, there was absolute silence as I began explaining what had happened down there. And uh, no one interrupted me, so I just spoke and got the story out. Then I went back into, the, um, into Bruce's room.
1: When you got back to Australia, time went by and you you met and married your wife, Alison. I did. Were you still living with the strain of post-traumatic stress disorder in those years? Yes, I didn't know what it was, but uh,
0: yes, I I was. And uh, Alison got the worst part of that deal because uh, I used to wake up and uh, thrash around rather brutally.
1: How long Uh, was it before you could seek help with that? I still got the card that took
0: me into the Vietnam Veterans Association, but it was some years. 85, 1985, and uh, an awful lot of suffering during that period. What did the counsellors there tell you? The the lady who counselled me uh, is still alive, and I talk to her now and again. What advice did she have for you? I opened the conversations by saying, I'm in trouble. Uh, I need help. And she said, I know. Uh, I said, how do you know? She said, you're here. Because you're here. And she sat me down and put five chairs out with me on the back left, and the other chairs empty. And we went through it all again. But we went through it at a different pace, a very sympathetic pace. And as we went deeper into the morning um, with the story, which obviously she'd known about it, it was in every newspaper in, in the world perhaps at the time. And uh, we spent a couple of hours there just unwinding, um, talking things over, and she would uh, ask me to repeat things nice and slowly, nice and carefully. Uh, Then she set an agenda for me, and I can hardly remember leaving and I can hardly remember the actual returns, but it was many returns. And uh, at the end of uh, a week, I would say, or a little more than a week, I quietly had decided that I must go back to Vietnam. Why did you decide that? I was becoming dizzy and dizzy with not fear but dizzy with being unable to control my, my feelings and my nights especially. What did you want to do when you got to Vietnam? Well, the first thing I wanted to do in the early part of the Vietnam veterans' discussions was to kill the man who was chasing me. One of the things I discovered very quickly when I got back to Vietnam, and I discovered this after I found the actual leader of that squad, was that the man who had delivered the coup de grace and the two of of the journalists who had still been alive, and he chased me. Well, the first thing I learned was that that man only lived another two to three minutes because uh, an American helicopter team saw them saw this chase going on, and they swooped down. There was a particular helicopter with a very, very narrow profile and was able to fly down these streets. They shot this chap. So the man I'd been chasing all that time had been dead for a long, long
1: time. So who was it you did meet when you went to Vietnam?
0: I met a man whose face I didn't see, but whom I understood from another general, uh, was the actual leader of the, of the squad. What did he tell and you about that day and why they shot and killed unarmed civilians? He said he was astonished to see me for a start. By this time he was a tobacco salesman and uh, his wife and, and, and a 13 or 14-year-old daughter were in the house when I finally arrived. Um, he didn't recognise me, of course, because I, my face would have been flat to, the, flat to the ground, but he was an extremely polite person And um, uh, it reminded me of my first days in Indonesia where um, I had to uh, discover humility once again. And he said, um, we thought you were CIA. We thought you were CIA. Why did you think that? Well, because you had a jeep. And most soldiers, certainly Vietnamese soldiers, don't have jeeps, number one. And number two, we were told that the CIA would... Uh, be well armed, and they would. But they would always wear
1: was um, civilian clothing. So, to their mind, the killings were precautionary ones. Yes. How did you end up getting on with this man?
0: I didn't go back to that place more than once or twice, but on the last occasion, I think it was, his daughter said, "My father is very worried; he's going to die in hospital here." He has kidney stones and he thinks that in a Vietnamese hospital, those who go in for those, those operations often die. I reported this to um, the ambassador at the time and he reported it to a French Catholic missionary and I put aside a 100 US dollars for him in a safe place with the, with the church as well. To pay for his and, treatment? Yeah, for his treatment. And um, he went into the hospital and his kidney stones were blasted. What with laser treatment? Yes. And uh, he survived. I returned to the house just that last time to see that, yes, he was alive. And I purchased for his daughter, who was going to high school, a bicycle, which had been on her
1: wish list for as long as she is alive, perhaps. There'd be many people hearing you say that and would be wondering why you would do that for the man who'd orchestrated the killing of your of your colleagues and friends. What do you say to that?
0: It was a decision I made on the spot, and it was a decision I would probably make in any circumstances of someone who has made a massive, massive mistake in their lives and who otherwise would be asked to carry
1: the uh, guilt of that ambush frank since then you went on to get a doctorate i did and you wrote the english version of a classic vietnamese war novel called the sorrow of war and this was named as as ranked as one of the 50 best translations of a novel in the 20th century by the london-based society of authors I look back on your, what you've told me, and I, I can hear a, a, a man who was driven at a very young age by his curiosity. Would you, would you see yourself as that person, as someone who's been primarily driven by your curiosity, wanting to see the world? And, and my word, you saw it, didn't you?
0: I did, but that was only the first half. The second half led me into jobs like the sorrow of war. Somewhere along that line, and I think my wife Alison had a lot to do with this, as a calming um influence, that I would repay. I would repay to those societies for all of the help they gave
1: me. Frank, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you.
0: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
1: abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.